Good morning again. I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. Uh, it's Susie, my wife, and I've been thinking about what to say about her, and I have three S words to describe her. Steady, supportive, and sound. Susie, come on up and tell us a story. Good morning. At my 16-week pregnancy ultrasound, the doctor looked very worried. The doctor called another doctor into the room, and after they discussed what they saw, they told me that I needed to come in for some more tests. Though I had miscarried before, I had come to take my pregnancies for granted after having two healthy babies, but this one was different. After I went in for some more tests and ultrasounds, I saw what the doctors were concerned about. Inside my uterus were small, grape-like cysts. There were a lot of them, and there were tiny little miniature grapes, clusters of them all around my uterus, growing right next to the baby. I remember seeing the first clump of clusters above the head, and then I would see another one over here and another one over there, and then, you know, you see them everywhere. And I just felt this deep pit enter my body. I remember coming home from the doctor's appointment with Peter and telling our housemate what we had just learned at the doctor's appointment. He was a young single guy who was living in an extra bedroom in our home. He didn't know what to say to me as I shared the news. He was really uncomfortable with the conversation. He mumbled, um, sorry, and then he just shuffled himself up the stairs. I remember feeling bad, because I made him feel bad. Now, would I be making a lot of people feel bad with my news? I soon found out that many of our friends and family didn't know what to say. Our doctor told us to quickly terminate the pregnancy before it was too late. They said that the baby would likely be born with many physical problems, like cerebral palsy and mesenchymal dysplasia. I was also at risk of developing cancer from the affected uterus. For weeks, we lived in great fear and anxiety. The decision deadline to terminate came and went, and we continued to live in great fear and anxiety. During this time, it was really hard for me to know who to listen to, who not to listen to. I wish that I could say that God comforted me and gave me peace, but my anxiety completely overtook me. Was carrying this pregnancy risking my own health? Was carrying this pregnancy risking my baby's health? Our own parents and many of our friends' worries were really hard to differentiate from our own. Their fears just completely became my fears. During this time, though I knew that God was with me, I sure did not feel peaceful. Luckily, I, I had a friend whose faith I could borrow from when mine felt non-existent. She was like a grandmother to me. She listened and told me, everything will be okay. She had been through hard times herself in her own life. She had survived cancer two times and she had raised seven girls. Her husband had been convicted of having incestuous relations with two of her daughters, and he was incarcerated. 
This horrible trauma estranged her from her own daughters and her own grandchildren for many decades. She would tell me stories of how she would in secret go to her grandson's baseball games to catch glimpses of her grandson during this long time of estrangement. Later in life, she was the caretaker for her husband when he came out of jail, her mom, and her aunt until they each passed away. Also, her house burned down, leaving her with just her bathrobe and two dogs, with no income, no home, and no possessions. So when she told me everything was gonna be okay, I believed her. <laughs> I leaned on her completely, and I borrowed her faith in God completely. This borrowed faith somehow carried me through the rest of my pregnancy. It carried me through the weekly ultrasounds that I had to go in for as I saw these mysterious clusters of grape-like cysts grow in size and shape and number. It carried me through a diag diagnosis of Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome for the baby from one of the leading experts at Cornell Medical Center. It carried me through when I was shown and told that I had been carrying twins, but that one resorbed the other. It carried me through the very last weeks to the anxious end. The delivery day finally came. There were many doctors, nurses, and medical staff in the room who were invited to witness this rare condition. To everyone's shock, the birth went smoothly, and soon the baby emerged. She was perfect. She was symmetrical and beautiful. I was completely overwhelmed with emotion. I was also confused as to how she was born healthy. The doctors quickly examined my placenta and said it was just a very strange looking uterus before asking Peter to sign it away for further examination. Our doctor mumbled, I'm sorry for what I recommended, referring to her constant advice to terminate before leaving the room. I don't understand what happened. All I know is everything turned out okay. I know that as a community, we have available to us others' faiths when ours seem non-existent. And I've learned that we sometimes need to do just that and borrow each other's faiths when we need to get through hard times. Because it's not that God is not with us, it's that God is with us through others around us. Finally, happy birthday, Peter. <laughs> Love you. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of John. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens as I'll be reading from John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26 in the, in the English Standard Version. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have be given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. I so feel tempted to complete Susie's story. You know how that is? If your spouse is telling the story, you want to get your angle in on it too. Um, But I'm going to restrain myself. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. We are in a series... I'll keep going. We'll all be professional here. We're in a series called Son of God in the book of John, and we are looking at the person and purpose of God as it's revealed in the purpose and person of Jesus who became incarnate for us. And the title of today's talk is Deep Well. And we're asking the question, who are you? Deep down, when you are unmasked, when nobody's looking, when you're not playing any part for anyone, when you're not living up to some external standard, your truest, most unmasked, naked self, who are you? You know, I was asking this question of myself, and I think uh, I came to conclude that identity is really a funny thing. You know, and I don't think about identity, and you know, I don't use that word in my head, but it turns out identity is what I end up thinking about. You know, who am I? I uh, partly think of myself as a pastor. Uh, That's part of who I am. That's what I do. And it defines my day. You know, it's how I spend my time. So it's not possible for me to not think about the title or the role 
uh, of being a pastor. I also think of myself, obviously, as a dad and as a husband. But, you know, I had three days of being a bachelor last week when Susie took the girls camping. And I wasn't a dad or husband. I just was a guy just at home trying not to regress too much. I'm a paddleboarder. I think of myself as a guy that paddleboards, you know? I was out on the water yesterday enjoying all the boats and everything, and I just felt like I'm that guy. Everybody on the boats are going, hey, look, that guy, the paddleboarder guy, right? Uh, I think of myself as a runner, and I think I draw some validation uh, through that category of being a human being. I'm the guy that likes to run. And uh, many of you relate to me that way. You text me and email me and make comments to me about running. You send me articles about running because you identify me as that guy. Who are you? You know, what kind of guy or gal are you? Uh, I had the wonderful opportunity to hike the enchantments on Friday. And some of you may not know what that is, but that's in Leavenworth. It's this world-class hike. There's a year-and-a-half-long waiting list to uh, go backpacking through the enchantments. It's a really uh, beautiful place. And along our hike, we ran across this guy that we kept sort of catching up to, and then they passed us, and we passed them. Uh, he's, turns out he's a councilman in a small little suburb of Vancouver, just east of Vancouver, called Port Moody. That's how he introduced himself. But to us, he's just a dad. He just had a dorky T-shirt on and typical like cargo pants that dads wear. And I would never guess he's a councilman. Is that what he is? Is that who he is, a councilman? He's a politician. He's a leader. He's an influencer. No, he's just a dad in dorky cargo shorts. And then we followed him down to the parking area because we finished about the same time. And when he got to the car, his wife just started chastising him for taking too long. He's not a councilman. He's just a guy getting yelled at by his wife. He's just a dude, just a nobody. And so you ask him, who is he? What is he? You know, when you close the book on this guy, this uh, Port Moody is the name of the town. Who is he? How would you describe him? What's the essence of who he is? What makes him him? Uh, as I said, I was uh, paddleboarding yesterday among the boats And it was really fun to just sort of be surrounded by boats and energy and festivities. And I was looking at all the people, and that's the point of it, you know, to go people watching, because everybody's in party mood. Um, And I don't know who they are. They can own multi-million dollar companies. They can be, uh, you know, in the service industry. I have no idea who they are. But they're not any of those things. At their core, they're just humans trying to have a good time, gravitating gravitating towards food and drink, conversation, wanting to look good, seeking validation, being insecure. Just people. There's nobody. And that's what I came to realize, that actually none of these roles mean anything. We are just creatures, just humans. And so... uh, Today, I want to ask this question, who are you? What are you really made of? And I, I want to invite you to somehow, with the Spirit's help, get, come into contact with sort of the bare essence of what defines you, who you are. 
my uh, life experience and my reading and research, uh, I keep zeroing in on this one uh, thing about who we are. And it's that we are really the sum of our longings and desires. That deep underneath everything, there's a kind of innate drive in all of us. You know, so if you sort of deconstruct all the motivation and the incentives that you have that gets you up in the morning and, and allows you to have a good day or a productive day, or you count up the years and you look back and you say, how have I come this far? What's really been the engine driving all the roles I play, all the work that I do, even the playing that I want to do? What is it? You know, the, the legitimate needs underneath all the sin, which is just an illegitimate way of meeting legitimate needs. You know, what is at the center of it all? And it's really your desires, your longings. It's what a lot of our desert fathers and monks and theologians and philo philosophers tell us. That we really are to sort of empty and the drive, the basic, most fundamental drive in all of us is this longing to be filled so that we're not empty. And the Bible would teach us that God has made us to be a deep, deep, but empty well. And God's life lesson for us is that everything else that we're grasping at can't fill our well, that our well is going to run dry unless he fills us and becomes a spring that's overflowing our well. And everything else, everyone else, just all fall, fall short. And sort of the salvation moment, the point at which you awaken to larger realities beyond your appetite, and your compulsions uh, is when you awaken to the knowledge that God and only God can really fill you as he intended, as he created you to be filled. And then it allows you to release the grip on everything and everyone else. It makes everyone sort of proportionately sized, you know, so you don't beat up your spouse because they don't fill you. They don't satisfy you. You let your spouse just be another traveler, another person. You're sort of hiking the enchantments with. That's all it is, just a guy, just a gal. And the thing that you long for is the thing that he or she is longing for also, and your friends. And you let your work and your possessions and your opportunities be what they are, sort of just arrows pointing to by their deficiency, pointing to the God who will never disappoint. And so that's the Bible story about what life is really about and how we are filled. I came across this fascinating article, uh, new research, showing that our emotions, you know, so much of how we define ourselves, our identity is wrapped up in how we feel in our emotions, and this article is showing that really a lot of our emotions come from the gut bacteria makeup in our stomachs and intestinal tract. And I thought, boy, I don't want to be defined by the bacteria in me. I'm not the sum of how I feel. How I feel is just gut bacteria, really? It's like, yeah, a lot of research is pointing to that now. 
so fascinating and helps me to realize I need to keep asking the question, who am I? You know, what am I really made of? Um, I don't know if I want to read you this whole quote or not. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to read, start reading it, and if I feel like we've had enough, I'll stop. But it's an article that one of you passed on to me. Uh, the title from the New York Times uh, is, The Universe Doesn't Care About Your Purpose. Catchy title, right? Joseph Carter, he's a philosopher at the University of Georgia. Uh, July 31, really re recent. Here's a quote from the article. Purpose is a universal human need. Without it, we feel bereft of meaning and happiness. A recent ethnographic study draws a strong correlation between purposefulness and happiness. Purpose seems beneficial to overcoming substance abuse, healing from tragedy and loss, and achieving economic success. But where does purpose come from? What is it? Aristotle believed that the universe is saturated with it, that everything has an intrinsic drive. Our word purpose comes from the Greek telos, a goal that stipulates what and how something needs to be. For Aristotle, the universe and everything in it was an essential directive. Any deviation from it belies the truth and reality. From cars, trees, animals, all the way to the cosmos itself, Aristotle argued, each thing has an inherent principle that guides the course of its existence. For Aristotle, nothing is more fundamental for us. Whether you're mulling a major life change or healing from trauma, being told that there's no purpose in life might be particularly devastating. The chances are better that you're looking for an ultimate explanation, or you could simply be searching for that something or someone meant for you, God, a soulmate, or a calling of sorts. He, he, uh, the quote ends, Purpose springs from our longing for permanence in an ever-changing universe. It is a reaction to the universe's indifference to us. And so what this philosopher, uh, he names himself as a materialist atheist uh, in the article, uh, is that either you have an intrinsic purpose, that is the plumb line of everything in your life. You know, any deviation from this directive, as he calls it, essential directive, uh, makes you feel like your life is out of chaos. You know, and the more you are in alignment, in resonance with this essential directive, the more you feel happy and successful. There's a kind of peace, a shalom, what Aristotle called happiness uh, in your life. Or, or, if you are a materialist like him, he says the alternative to seeking purpose in your life is just a reaction to the indifference of the universe. And he believes the universe is indifferent. The universe doesn't care about you. And so the challenge that uh, I have for you, whether you're a Christian or not here in this room, is what's inside of you? Who are you? What's driving you? You know, do you connect to this biblical uh, truth that God created you for his own purposes, that you have a maker who gets to define you, and your job is to connect to this God, 
And your job and your possessions and your relationships, all of these things aren't it. It's really ultimately all about God. So either you believe this or you're combating the indifference of the universe. And philosophically, logically, you have two choices. Purpose comes from outside of you and is given to you as a directive. Or you yourselves are generating a fight against reality, which is an indifferent universe. So those are your two things. And so I want you to connect to something today. Get honest about where you're at uh, as we go through this passage. <clears throat> this is the key verse, uh, the, the um, climax, really, the meaning of the story that uh, was read for us today. Jesus said to her, verse 13 and 14, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Just a little side comment here. The Bible uses he and him and masculine language to actually include everybody, all the uh, you know, categories of human beings. It doesn't mean that it's excluding everyone, it's, but it's speaking in a culturally uh, appropriate way because that's what the culture was. So as a dad of four daughters and a brother of three sisters, uh, I really want to encourage the woman to not feel excluded by the Bible. It's just uh, a writing that's sort of trapped in time and the Holy Spirit uh, and you, as you read it, have to uh, translate it, bring it up to code as it, as it were. Um, so there it is, Jesus talking to a woman using him language. Obviously, Jesus isn't excluding the woman. So this to me is one of those uh, proofs in the Bible that Jesus never, ever, ever meant to exclude women whenever he used masculine language and that's throughout the whole Bible. Okay, so here's out of Jesus' own mouth saying him, but he's really talking to a woman. Uh, but there it is. That we are all meant to be filled with water from above. That God has created us to be deep but empty wells made to be filled by him. Now, maybe you're not religious Maybe you haven't lived life long enough, but uh, I'm 44 today, and I really feel like there cannot be a human being that can possibly satisfy me. It's not possible. I'm tired of battling this ideal in my stupid head. Who taught me that human beings are supposed to satisfy me? It wasn't the Bible. And one of the battles I fight is, how do I release people in my life? How do I come to a place where they are whatever the heck they are, but they are not meant to fill my well? It was never the design. My job? Who says you have to go find meaning in your work? Who told you that nonsense? It wasn't the Bible. The Bible says, whatever you do, you do it unto the Lord. Because ultimately, your work is not about your work. It's not about your fulfillment. It's actually about the failure of work pointing to God. 
And so everyone and everything in your life is meant to fail by design so that it causes your eyes to lift up and go, what now? I have no other rocks to look under anymore. That's it. I've run fresh out of rocks. And then you say, is it you, Lord? Is it really you? Really? The intangible, invisible, mysterious, so-called God? That's what I'm supposed to look to? And God said, yes, it's by faith. The Bible tells us that we are beloved at the rock bottom of who or what you are. You are a deep well that longs to be filled with living water. Okay, uh, two quick insights today and uh, we'll close. We have communion today. Uh, One is hard to accept and two is hard to shut up. One, hard to accept. Verse 7 through 10. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The first insight is that this woman is experiencing for the first time in her life an acceptance that is not earned. She has been rejected by the legitimate members of society. The Samaritans were deemed to be, quote-unquote, dogs because they weren't really human, according to the Jews, because they are traitors, they are compromisers, they forsake their faith, and mingled with the pagans, and the religion that they practiced didn't resemble sufficiently what the Jews believed uh, worshiping Yahweh should look like. And so they were uh, considered uh, defiled and uh, unacceptable. And so, you know, commentators would point out that she's coming to draw water at the well, not in the morning with other women when it's cool, but in the heat of the noonday sun. And so she's isolating herself uh, because she's, as we learn later, she's been married five times before, which means that in that culture, she was divorced five times. She was rejected by men five times. And she's so scared of getting married that she's living with this man now. But he talks to her, which a rabbi was not allowed to do uh, by himself uh, in daylight. And here he is doing that, hugely affirming her, validating her, Uh, as a human being. He is uh, imputing onto her worth and dignity and legitimacy. And it's shocking to her. And so she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? It doesn't make any sense to her. And later we learn the disciples are shocked and actually scandalized by what they see when they come back from trying to uh, score some burgers. Just shocking to them, right? Right? Why does it feel so scary and counterproductive and risky to offer acceptance to other people? Why is it that we withhold acceptance as it, until it meets certain conditions? You know, we really want to know that this person in front of us are going to change or promise to do better or repent of their ways before we love on them. 
But here Jesus is accepting this woman first. He offers her grace first. Before she's changed her life at all, before she has made any promises, before she is good enough, before she expresses any kind of self-awareness or commitment to do better or be better, he accepts her. And this is the first insight, that acceptance is the door through which transformation happens. That the people in your life, they cannot change until they experience your acceptance of them just as they are. And that's really scary for us. It's hard to accept because we fear that if we accept them just as they are, then they're going to stay just as they are. And who wants that? Yet the Bible flips it and says, actually, they will never come clean. Actually, until you create a safe and holy space, they can never, ever reveal to you who they really are. They will stay masked. And the very issues that you despise about them, that you want them to change out of, they will never be able to bring that to the light because they fear condemnation and abandonment and judgment from you. And so the first door to transformation is this high-risk thing called acceptance. And until you do it, they will not feel safe enough to come. And so while sin is abounding, that's when grace has to abound all the more. Because when you give grace, when they don't really feel like they need it because they're kind of earning it, it doesn't do anything. They already feel entitled to it. They feel like they've earned it somehow. But if you offer grace when grace is undeserved, that's when grace becomes grace for the first time and you begin to see the power of grace. But it could take, the problem is, years. Years and years and years and years. And actually, you may never see the fruit of your labor. Our call, our job to imitate Christ is to offer acceptance and grace from the onset to the very bitter end, even if death comes first, trusting that this is the way God has called us to live and be amongst other people. Because that's what he offers to us, the gift of God, as John says here. Uh, we see a little bit more uh, insight into this. Verse 16 to 18, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The great insight here is that love is not blind. Love actually does not see less but it sees more. It knows everything. Jesus knows her whole story. But he loves her. And so it's a story he's working to redeem. He still believes in the power of redemption in her life. He believes she can change. And he's going to be a redemptive agent in her life. And so, you know, when you love somebody, you think, well, they must not know everything. You know, I have this question come up in my mind all the time about spouses. Because one of you is perfectly beautiful and normal, and the other one is totally psycho. And we look at you and go, how is this possible? Do they not know? Do they not see this thing about their spouse? And I says, yeah, they see it. They see more than you do. They live with it minute by minute every day. That's why they love her. That's why they love him. Because love doesn't see less, it sees more. 
You can criticize my sisters, and I will fight you. Because not because I don't agree with you, but because they're my sisters and I love them. You understand? You can criticize my kids and I'll fight you because they're my kids. It's not that I don't see those things about them. I do, and I worry about it, and I wonder if they'll outgrow it. But I love them. So love, actually, acceptance doesn't require you to shut your eyes. It requires that you open them and connect to the whole of their story. Okay, that's one. That's like, moving on to two. Hard to shut up. 23 to 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, this passage takes so many weird turns. Lots of left turns in this story. You know, you start with water, thirst, and then you move on to this whole idea of uh, acceptance. And then it sort of pivots, talks about her husband. And then now it's talking about worship. And then the whole story that we didn't, I didn't read or print for us uh, is this evangelism that she does. She saves her whole town. She just can't shut up about it. You know, and uh, in the, the best sermons on this story will actually have just one theme. And it won't be about any of those things. So here's what we're coming to. When you connect to your truest, most naked and barest self, and you allow God to meet you there, and you experience God in the depths of your soul, not like your fake self, not your outer self, but your true, deep, naked self. When you connect with God at that level, you begin to experience a kind of response to God that you never imagined before. And so Jesus is talking about worship because he's saying, woman, I'm going to unmask you in one fell swoop. Boom, go call your husband. She's unmasked. I perceive you are a prophet, she says. How does he know this story about who I am? How does he know this fundamental directive, this essential directive that has been driving me, my need for acceptance and love and the husbands that I've been seeking this in? All of these five husbands have failed. And she's with this man she's not married to now. And she says, I'm thirsty. I am dying of thirst. Can you see that? This is really who I am. I'm a deep but dry well. And none of these men can fill it. None of the options available to me can satisfy and fill this well that is who I am. And Jesus says, boom, go call your husband. I see you. I know who you are. And I love you just as you are. I accept you. Encounter me. Meet me. Allow me to fill you. And you will never be thirsty again. And then she, in response to experiencing this kind of ministry and connection of the chorus level of who she is, she wants to worship. She's the one who brings up worship because that's her soul's response. So here's the definition of worship. Worship is always two parts. It's revelation and then response. Worship is not something we generate or muster up or we force ourselves to do because it's Sunday and everybody else is doing it. Worship is our response from our soul to the revelation that we have received, that Jesus, the Christ, is our Savior, that he loves us to the bottom. He sees and knows all that we are, and he accepts us and loves us just as we are. 
And when you come in contact with that truth, your response to that revelation is what we call worship or worthship. We attribute worth to this God because you say, oh my God, God alone is worthy. It's not husband number one, two, three, four, or five, or man number six. None of these guys do it. The Samaritans don't know anything. The Jews don't know anything. Actually, it's just God. It's Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the thing everyone else has been pointing to by their deficiencies and failures. And so worship is a response to that kind of deep level salvation. And then evangelism is just a part of worship. You know that we are all evangelistic about the things that we believe in? Why did this woman go and tell her whole village? And notice, you know, if you read the story further along, it says that she told all the men in her village. I don't know what's going on there, but it's just interesting that she's like, you failed, you failed, you failed. She's kind of rubbing it in. None of you men, turns out, have the answers I was longing for. You know, she becomes evangelistic. Not because Jesus told her to be evangelistic. It's just her natural response because we all can't shut up about the things that we actually believe in. How many of you have sold gear, you know, electronics and recipes and things that you just have or know about because you believe in it so much? It's been a lifeline for you. It saved the day in some way and you're like excited about it. Every chance you get, you sneak it in. I love to call out John Lindbergh. If you talk to John over here, he's, he will find a way to talk about trains. He will. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you just got a cancer diagnosis. He will talk about trains somehow. True or false, John Lindbergh? <laughs> no answer. <laughs> he believes in trains. We all have some gospel we believe in, you know, and that's what we worship. That's how you know what you're worshiping. That's how you know what your real God is, is the things that you can't shut up about. And here she's been cured of her addiction to people and false solutions and illegitimate means of meeting legitimate needs, and she can't shut up about it. God's work in her life. She's met a savior. She's met a man who told me everything, everything about me, she tells her. She tells the men in her village. And she gets down to that spirit and truth level of worship because that's where Jesus reached her at that deep core of spirit and truth. And so she worships from that place. We conclude here with verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so this is my challenge for all of us um, here today. Is there really, I'm going to push you to it, is there really something or someone in your life that you believe can fill your deep well? Name this thing that you believe in your heart of hearts. Use all the brain power and heart power you have. Everything you've read, everything you know about history, everything that is knowledge to you, use all of that to answer this question. Name one thing in your life that you believe can fill your well. I tried to answer this question and I came up with nothing. 
in my heart of hearts, I know that everything else will fail. And that it sounds so cheesy and religious and Christianese and evangelical. I don't care anymore. I really think Jesus is the only lover of my soul. He's the only one who knows me to the bottom and accepts me and will never forsake me. He is committed to saving me from myself. And he will bring me home all the way through his acceptance and grace. He is my purpose. He's my telos. He's my essential directive and drive. And he's the reason I live and move and have my being. I know this. I know this. And I wonder if you do also. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we need you this day and every day. I pray that you would reveal to us like you did to this woman at the well what we really are and what we really need. And as you meet us there, we will worship you and we will tell others as a response to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.